Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. Where do we begin today? A very important question. Now, you've got to think about this. And then give us a call. There's no right answer, no wrong answer. But, you know, President Obama did a couple of very, very important things this week uh, in terms of legacy. He uh, signed two orders, one that would protect uh, the Arctic from any more offshore oil drilling, uh, and the other that would protect the Atlantic coast from Virginia all the way up to New England from any offshore oil drilling. Uh, and they also adopted new rules on coal-powered plants. So the president is clearly very interested in doing as much as he can in these last few days to firm up his legacy, to take action in the orders where he orders important issues to him where he wants to be remembered. That raises today's question. It's time to look back. It's all over, really. He comes back from Hawaii, who have you know a week, ten days before they start on the nineteenth of July. The schedule came out today is when the the Trump inaugural parade starts, right, with the laying of a wreath uh, in Arlington. So the president will have you know about ten days when he comes back, and that's just sort of house cleaning and packing things up. Uh, so for so the Obama presidency, for all practical purposes, is over. It's time to ask the question. Looking back. What are the high points of the Obama presidency? What are the good things that he has done? And what are the not-so-good things that President Obama uh, will be remembered for? The good and the bad in the Obama legacy, 866-55-PRESS. Your nominations, welcome, 866-55-PRESS. Or on Twitter, of course, at BP Show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. You don't have to have a whole list, just one good, one bad, or just one good. Um, interesting. So I'll, I'll start with mine. Yeah, go for it. All right. The good? What the hell? You're gonna my the show. Good? You're gonna give the my good? show, I get to go first. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, the good for me is I would say Obamacare definitely will be the signature legislative achievement of this presidency. There are now some 20 million people who have health insurance in this country who never had it before, could not afford it before. Um, people don't have to worry about not being able to buy insurance because of a pre-existing condition. They don't have to worry about losing their insurance because they get too sick and therefore uh, they're costing too much money. Uh, young people don't have to worry about affording health insurance until they're 26 because they can stay on their parents' plan. You know all the good things about it. There are some bad things about it. We'll get to that. But it is as close to universal health care as we have ever been in this country after trying for 100 years. That's number one. Number two, I think, is the steps that he has made toward climate change, which are huge. He's done more than any other president 
And it's all capped up maybe with the Paris Climate Accords, which uh, George W. Bush would never have signed, but President Obama has. He was there uh, and took the lead for the United States in climate change uh, long overdue. He's done as much as he can. We hope Donald Trump doesn't undo it. I think a third thing is the opening to Cuba. Very, very important. Long, long overdue. The president will be remembered for that and, uh, and, and seen as a real pioneer uh, in, taking, in taking that step. I think another one is the Iran nuclear deal. Um, we, you know, he put Iran on the sidelines in terms of making a new nuclear weapon, building a new nuclear weapon, joining the nuclear club for at least 15 years and probably forever. That is certainly a signature uh, achievement. And I would add a fifth one, um, which I think is um, Sue Betty didn't get a chance to make another appointment, but I think uh, appointing uh, Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor to the Supreme Court uh, will long live long, long after President Obama as two great people on the court uh, who will really help change the direction of this country. I would have been able to do They have already done so. Uh, they, of course, would have been able to do even more uh, if Merrick Garland had been confirmed. I, I put those on the – I may be forgetting some. That's why I list. want to hear from you, 866-55-PRESS. Um, but those are signature achievements the president can certainly be proud of. You want to add to it? I have. A, you actually took a lot of mine, but I have more. Well, I have a few others. I have a few yeah, others. Some of those will be repeat. That's okay. The repeats yeah. are okay. I have to say uh, – in. It was a really, really big deal at the time, and I think in hindsight it's probably less of a big deal considering what we've been up against. But we needed closure on Osama bin Laden, and he brought us closure mm-hmm. on Osama bin Laden. So he worked through that. We know how he went through that. We've heard the story a million times now. Uh, that's that's a big one. I think that the uh, prison reform that he's putting out there, and it's late in the game, but I think that to highlight to a lot of people who never, ever, ever thought about prison reform and putting it on the table is a big deal. But it never got off the table. It never really got off the table. But he put it out on the table. The conversation has started. I'll put it that way. Right. And also, one that he did get done, Cuba. Because yeah. that's one of those things that presidents could have just glided along for years and years and years and never actually revisited. And he did. He revisited it and showed that what we've been doing for all these years <coughs> was stupid. Yeah, right. Yeah. Those are those those are some of the things I like. Okay. And by the way, one more. Can I yeah. get one more? Yeah. There's same no... same sex marriage. Oh same yes. Same sex marriage. Yes. Yes. Under his uh, administration, the LGBT community has seen. He's done more for the LGBT community so than, many games. than any other yeah. president. Again, you know, it was the Supreme Court that did that, but of course, he did as president. He's the first president to uh, embrace same sex marriage. And, of course, he was shoved into it sure, by Joe Biden yeah, uh, and a lot of other great people around the country. It took him a long time to evolve, <laughs> uh, but not to be too critical, he got there. He got there uh, in the right place. And, uh, and, and by the way, that, that, that's never going to go back. I mean, that's, that's, we're moving forward from, from, from there on. So there are other good things, too. I mean, I just... Uh, that we could that we could talk about. Look forward to hearing from you at eight six six fifty five press. Uh, the not so great quickly, and then we'll take a break and then come back and take your calls. Um, uh, I would also put on the not so great Obamacare uh, on both lists because. Uh, and by the way, you know this is easy for me in a sense because I already wrote a book about it. Remember, buyer's remorse ahead of the curve. This came out in February. 
Copy's still available, by the way. Go to our website, <laughs> BillPressShow.com. Um, and it's still a damn good read with that endorsement by Bernie Sanders. Uh, but Obamacare still leaves the insurance companies in charge. It still leaves the prescription drug companies in charge. It's not single payer. And so it's still a half-assed system and always will be until we get the insurance companies out of the way. Um, I'd have to say that there were two issues where the president tried, but he, he waited too late to try and therefore was unable to get anything uh, through the Congress. If he had done something about gun safety in the first two years when Democrats were in charge of, of the Congress, and he never mentioned it, if he had done something about immigration reform in the first two years when we had Democratic control of Congress, we could have comprehensive immigration reform. We could have reasonable gun safety measures in place. Uh, president didn't do anything about them at the time. Uh, he was all tied up into uh, Obamacare and trying to make a budget deal. Remember the grand bargain with John Boehner? Missed a big opportunity. I'm sure he regrets that he wasn't able to do anything about those two areas, um, but he should have moved faster on them. And one final thing, we'll get more into this when we come back. The Democratic Party. Democratic Party president uh, didn't pay it, President Obama didn't care about it, didn't pay any attention to it. As a result, the Democratic Party today is in horrible, horrible shape. We've lost, we've lost everything at rock bottom and have to come back, partly because President Obama uh, didn't care. Welcome to the program, a good friend from the Atlantic, assistant editor, uh, Priscilla Alvarez, uh, to talk about some of the important issues of the day. Priscilla, it's nice to see you. Good morning. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. And we start with some breaking news, breaking news right from the Trump transition team this morning. Uh, Do we have our breaking news sounder? No, we don't. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Well, do we have our breaking news Spokesperson here? Sure, sure. Right. I'll step in. All right, give it to us. Uh, Kellyanne Conway has, has a been, job. Has been an, well, you can do it then. <laughs> Let me, Kellyanne Conway is has been named counselor to the president. Counselor to the president. That is her new job. Donald Trump made the announcement this morning. They put out an announcement that says, uh, um, President-elect Trump's victory on November 8th also shattered the glass ceiling for women. Conway is the first female campaign manager of either major party to win a presidential general election. Which may be true, but she... uh, All right, I I don't want to take too much away from her. She was the third campaign manager, so... so, so, (laughs) She had a lot of campaign managers. Some other people who deserve credit there, namely the candidate himself, I think, who sends the mood of the times and places where he should be campaigning. Bruh. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but oh, shut up. That's perfect. But I gotta say, you know, she drives me crazy. But I know her well. She's very good at what she does. Very good at her job. She was rumored to be press secretary. Maybe that would have been a step down for her. Yeah. To be press secretary. Yeah. And actually, communications director. And so, therefore, it was the word <laughs> on the street. Priscilla was that she was not going to work in the White House because yeah. she's got four children. Uh, she's got her own business. Mm-hmm. Uh, that she'd be close to the president, advising from outside, but but senior counselor to the president's a big big job. Yeah, and it seemed that she didn't want to have an outspoken role on in the White House either. Yeah. So this was going. This sort of seems like another way for her to approach Trump. That's a little bit in, in the behind the scenes. I mean, she, 
she is a big reason that Trump won. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She is a big, big reason that Trump won. And she's been the face, the voice of the transition team since November 8th. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, what's going to be interesting, I think, is you've got Reince Priebus, chief of staff, Steve Bannon, senior Chiefs advisor or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Is, mm-hmm. And then now Kellyanne Conway, senior counsel. Is that what special counsel? Special counsel, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, I, I, I can I can I can sense a little <coughs> tension among the three of those as to which one. Well, Trump is keeping the people in his inner circle close. Yeah, that's what this is. But yeah. I mean, yeah, you know that they're yeah. not going to oh. agree on everything in different yeah. directions. There's going to be a little tension there as to which one is has the most influence, which one speaks to him last, because mm-hmm. I think that's usually the person that will influence Donald Trump the most. But at any rate, there's breaking news there from the Trump team, Kelly Kellyanne Conway. Uh, and, of course, I guess the other breaking news is that uh, uh, Donald Trump is going to close Guantanamo Bay uh, on day one of his presidency. Is that what you're reporting? Not quite. <laughs> uh, during the campaign, he said quite the opposite, that he's going to load it up with some bad dudes, and I quote. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so essentially we Did he had, mean Democratic members of Congress? Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, it was vague. So we don't exactly know what that means. But he has said that he didn't agree with some of the ways that um, President Obama had released some of the detainees in Guantanamo. Um, So, again, exactly what policy he'll take, what approach he'll take, we do not know. But as far as we know for now, (laughs) President Obama came in eight years ago wanting to shut this down. Um, It was his campaign promise shortly after taking office in 2009 um he had signed an executive order to close it within a year and eight years later we see that that just has not been the case um and it's just a very complicated issue um but um we can give him some credit in the sense that when he arrived there were a little over 240 detainees and now he is in the final push to get out about 17 or 18 more, which will leave about 40 or so for when Donald mm. Trump comes into office. So the number has declined. It declined under George W. Bush as well. Um, but, but it's signif- still in operation. Significantly mm-hmm. under President uh, Obama, right? Yeah, yeah, and significantly under Bush as well. There was about, at, at its highest, it was about 780 detainees. Yeah, yeah. And um, Bush, I, I believe, uh, had reduced that by around 500. So... Um, so he did quite a bit as well. And part of the problem, isn't it, finding countries who will take these people? Yes, it is. So a few things, right? So we had um, Obama had proposed bringing some detainees to the United States and transferring them to prisons here. Um, Congress immediately rejected that, passed legislation saying that they could not come to the United States. So then the next step is who will take them abroad? Um, and what places are, can they be taken abroad? So Yemen, for example, you have some Yemeni detainees, but you can't take them there if there's still um, unstable situation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like yeah. inviting them to get back. So it's a, it's a really tough situation and, because you have to have that happen. And then also you have to have, to an extent, some politicians in other countries may be happy to bring back their... They're, you know, they're citizens, um, but it's all very difficult. And um, the New Yorker actually had a great piece kind of showing that tension that was ongoing with how you had to negotiate with these countries and what they were asking for in return. And it's messy. It's right. a messy situation. Yeah. So the 17 or 18 that's rumored or that's yeah, sort of in the works. Huh? Exactly. Or- so um, the latest is the latest report is that they um, have asked or were intending to ask Congress 
um, or notify them that they were going to have 17 or 18 detainees um, transferred. Transferred? Transferred to, I think there were a number of different countries, um, but not within the United States. Um, But again, we don't really know where that goes. I mean, the, the law requires for the Pentagon to notify Congress, and whether this plan will be executed or not, um, we'll see how many Trump people do. With the election over, and now we're kind of settled into the transition and getting ready for the big inaugural festivities, we thought it was time to invite we finally allowed Dante Chinny back, our, our favorite uh, strategist, statistician, pollster, <clears throat> whatever you want to be called. One of those. Some of from uh, NBC <laughs> News and Wall Street Journal. Hi, Dante. Nice to see you. It's good to be here. So, uh, Dante, what the hell happened? The last time you were in, you, uh, like everybody else, said Hillary Clinton was going to win this election. I, I don't know. I mean, I think America's on the way to being great again, and we should all celebrate that. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I think I think th- three things happened uh, that night. One is if you look at states like uh, – th- and the story was really different in different states, which is fascinating because everything this year about the election and how the vote ultimately shook out was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The vo- votes in Wisconsin and Michigan, those votes, those losses are really about she's not getting the vote. She, she didn't get the vote she needed out of Detroit and Milwaukee. The vote was down in those mm-hmm. places by a lot, way more than yeah. what the margin finally was. But, you know, that – that wouldn't swing the election. I, I think you look at what happened in Florida and Pennsylvania, and the story's different. The, the story in Florida and Pennsylvania is there was this theory that there was this army of kind of uh, white voters way, that never turned out, and they turned out. And you, you do have to give the Trump people credit. Like, they found a way to get more votes mm-hmm. out of a shrinking part of the population. And they did it in ways that were really fascinating. You look at some counties, and... Counties you mean that have had white, white, white voters. When you say shrinking, yeah, and not just white, but white, non. There's this thing. Nobody wants to talk about the the education thing because somehow it, it's bad to say that people, white people, without a college education, vote for Donald Trump. So that means, oh, you're saying the stupid people voted for Donald Trump. But look, I'm saying that white people, without a college education, voted for Donald Trump. Those that that segment of the population is more exposed to what's happening economically in uh, global globalism they they feel as though their time has passed and they're they're being passed by and you look at some of the counties that had turned that had increased turnout in Florida and Pennsylvania you're talking about places that had declines in population that had an increase in the number of votes between 2012 and mm. 2016 in that time fewer people live in a lot of those counties and yet he got more votes out of them that's that's that is it i've got to say like that's pretty remarkable yeah i mean right. the, the, he was making moves that looked yeah. insane at the end. And yeah. then in hindsight, was going, well, he but clearly knew. Did, so did he, he get them because he now. targeted them, worked them, understood that that's where he had to get his votes, or was it just luck? Well, I'm, I'm sure we're... I'm sure they're going to say it's targeting and genius. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, but, I mean, I will say that there was, if you look at even where he held his rallies, and this is <clears throat> a year ago now, I was at the Journal, and we were looking at where he's holding his rallies, and I was talking to some people I work with there, and I was like, huh, this is really fascinating. The places he's going, if you look at the specific places he's going, lots of white people, not a lot of college degrees, and they've been struggling economically. And it was even in Massachusetts because he wouldn't, he wouldn't go to New Hampshire. He would go just south of New Hampshire like Lowell mm-hmm. and places like this. Yeah. And it was fascinating because he's in the media market. He he gets to have some of the message in Massachusetts. So it bleeds over into New Hampshire, and he did that over and over again. He went to a, like suburban, I think Harrisburg, when he was when he was in uh, Pennsylvania. In Michigan, he was going to 
you know, yeah, he went to Warren and Macomb County. That is the, the third element I will say of the story is that he did flip a lot of blue-collar voters. So yeah. I have this type in the American Communities Project I run called uh, Middle Suburbs. And those middle suburbs tend to be whiter than America, not quite as well-educated. It's almost average, completely average household income, true median household income. And he swung the vote in those places. Romney won those places by two points. He won them by 14. Mm. And what are those places? Well, they're, they're Macomb County in Michigan. They're Lackawanna and Luzerne County in Pennsylvania. So that the three things that happened, he swung blue-collar voters. He brought out this army of kind of rural white voters that people didn't know if they existed. And then she did not get the vote she needed in some states out of – I really do think out of the African-American population because it's the big cities. I mean, Milwaukee, Detroit, mm-hmm. those are the centers. And also in Michigan, um, not just Detroit but in Flint. Uh, in Genesee County, Wayne County. She didn't get the number she she needed to hit. So how do you square the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by Mm -hmm. 3 million Mm -hmm. and he won the electoral vote? Again, is it because they realize a popular vote today, the Trump campaign, the popular vote doesn't matter and so we're just going to focus on those electoral votes? I think that's I think that's part of it. I, I really do think when you look at the electoral college map and the popular vote, we're at a point now where I was talking to uh, Chuck, actually, a couple weeks ago at Meet the Press about this. We're at a point now where I don't know when Republicans are going to win the popular vote again in a presidential race. And I don't know if they need to. I mean, because you're talking about— Clearly, they didn't this year. There are four states, there are four states with more than 20 electoral votes. Uh, California, New York, uh, Texas, Florida. Oh, mm-hmm. and, sorry, six. California, New York, Texas, Florida, uh, Pennsylvania, Illinois. Okay. So three of those states aren't just Democratic. They are double-digit Democratic for the last five, six elections. California, New York, Illinois, winning by double digits. Uh, Florida is always razor thin. Uh, Pennsylvania, this time, Trump won it very close. Mm-hmm. And then Texas is the one of, the, the one of those six states that's solidly uh, Republican right. still. Uh-huh. And it's changing, but still solidly Republican. So if those are your six most populous, populous states and you're winning states like California and New York by just massive margins and these other states are close, then, it you know, look, once in the last, what is it, since 92, so 92, 96, 2004, 8, 12, 16, only once in the last seven presidential election has a Republican won the popular vote, uh, 2004. Mm. That's interesting. And that does tell you something about what's kind of happened yeah. and it's about and it's and it's not there's no conspiracy here it's just it's what's happened to the population and how it's moved around the country but at the same time if you those the, those big vote those big states they not only have more votes they yeah. have more electoral votes too yeah but remember you get if you get i mean 50 percent plus one you get all the electoral votes right so there are a lot of extraneous votes in states like uh, california and new york that essentially are meaningless they, you've, I did. I did. I actually did do this for me at the press. You're talking about millions of votes that are just completely worthless in those states because once you win it by more than one yeah, vote, yeah, the right. rest are worthless. Uh, and there are lots. And Democrats, because they win populous states by a lot, there are a lot of votes like that. So I mean, it is. A, there is something now when you look at the electoral college versus the popular vote. It's not rigged, but the reality is we have spread ourselves around the country in such a way. Where it is, uh, the electoral college is where the Republicans kind of have to go to win, and the Democrats can win the popular vote a lot. It's interesting how the the yeah. response, yeah. the rebuttal from the Trump people on, 
well, you lost the popular vote by almost three million votes. Is well, if you take away California, yeah, well, that's that's I saw that yesterday. And, I, but I, I see that a lot from the yeah. Trump. It was just like, come on, guys, California still counts as a state. You might not like it. Well, I mean, not just, it's just it's also the biggest state. I mean, right. you can't just start eliminating states. Right, I mean, right, it's right. Like, that it's aren't like, favorable to you. All right, well, then let's yeah. pull away the electoral. Let's you know, like, well, you know. North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, they should have fewer electoral votes. Right. You know, it just gets it gets ridiculous. I mean, you can't do that. You can't yeah. do it. And so it's when I look at it I, right now. Yeah. Democrats are going to do well in the popular vote. Uh, the electoral vote. Uh, it, I don't know if it was genius on their part, but I think it is very much. On, look, if you looked at the 2012 map, so, what do they need to do? They needed to flip Ohio, Florida and Pennsylvania. They flipped those three states. They won it. Right. They flipped those <coughs> plus <coughs> Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh that's that's you know that's a tough mountain to climb in terms of the electoral college. Well, I'm tempted to say that the mess the lesson there is that Democrats ought to focus less on California or less on New York, and more on the Rust Belt states. But the problem is, I agree with more on the Rust Belt states, but they didn't focus a lot on no, California and New York because they took they it, they didn't they, need they to. Almost, they exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't say they take it for granted, but they know they're going to do well there. I mean. Hillary didn't spend any money in California or right. not much time right. except to raise money. Right, 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 right. Yeah, Same absolutely. in New York. No, Same no. in New York, right? Well, she didn't do enough, though, in the Rust Belt. I mean, she didn't visit no. Wisconsin, right? I mean, that was Did this, not go to Wisconsin. Uh, and, you know, no, Michigan, no, she didn't. No, Rust Belt that was ignored. Right. Yeah. Because that was the blue wall. Right. And, you know, there are real, they're, they're, look, I'm from there. There are a lot of people who feel they have been let down. By the Democrats, and it's not just the Democrats, but really by the establishment. The establishment yes. has has yes. has yes. pushed them down. This thing where everybody was shocked in the selection of like, wow, you know, a lot of people are really angry about trade agreements. It's like that is not a new thing. That has been going on for a long time. What's new is that Trump brought it back up in this election, brought up NAFTA, which is really old at this point, but brought it up as an issue to hang just you know as as a peg to kind of hang the larger message of. The establishment doesn't care about you anymore. Remember NAFTA? All those people in Washington, all those people in those East Coast cities, they're they're sitting pretty, and you aren't. And, you know, it's not even whether or not it's true, because, I, look, I, a lot of jobs are being lost to automation. Okay, so it's a question of whether you're going to lose your job to an American robot or a Chinese robot, right, ultimately, yeah, for, right. A lot, for a lot of manufacturing jobs. But, you know, that is a very strong message for a part of the country that has been left behind. And yeah. Democrats don't have a good answer for it right now. Uh, we'll take a break. But there's a in this week's, it's a double edition of The New Yorker, there's a very good article about automation. And it points out that Th Donald Trump's claim, I'm going to bring all these jobs back. That's impossible. Right. Because those jobs coming back are robots. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. There may also be some attention to uh, prison reform and conditions in local jails. Uh, the Huffington Post has been looking into that whole issue. Senior Justice reporter Ryan Riley 
taking time to come in the studio this morning. Ryan, thank you for coming in. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for what having me. What have you looked at? What have you found? So, so essentially what we did in the year after Sandra Bland's death, we um, basically tried to track every jail death in the country. Um, there's a lot of attention around that issue, and, you know, the conclusion was that she committed suicide. Um, and, I mean, the, you know, suicides are a big problem in jails, and actually the latest data that we have out um, showed that the most suicides in jails occurred in 2014, um, than any other year since at least 2000. It's a really major issue, and the amazing thing there is that they're very easily preventable. So our first uh, focus, our first story in July, focused on you know looking at basically how you stop these these jail suicides. We went back and we, once we gathered that data, we tried to refine it because we were collecting this from all across the country. We had to go to local um, jails, we had to go to states and get all this data and put it together. And we tried to figure out you know where basically the deadliest jails Are were. Are these some people not under supervision or? Yeah, so I mean, like, there's a no- for 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 suicides. There's a number of steps you could take to sort of prevent people from, um, you know, taking their lives. First is yeah. sort of screening and trying to determine whether or not you need to put them under any sort of like closer supervision to make sure. Um, but there's also just like very simple things you could do in terms of like the actual facilities. Like one thing that people use a lot is air vents to hang themselves. So if you get, you know, you get rid of the air vents, you replace them with something that's sort of resistant or won't allow anyone to hang anything up there. Um, you take away things that can be easily ripped. Sheets are a big thing. There's like more suicide resistant um, sheets that a lot of facilities can buy. Um, but, you know, the other side of this is medical care. And, you know, the medical care in jail off, jails often isn't, you know, up to snuff. And people don't have the full history um, of an individual when they come in. And often, you know, this is a point in someone's life where their life where they're, you know, under a lot of stress and obviously getting arrested. Um, it's a, you know, it's a major point of contention in someone's life and can often, you know, have deadly consequences. Yeah, which could push push them over the edge, yeah. right? Yeah, right. For sure. So are most of the deaths... In in jails, you found suicides, they well as opposed to police abuse or uh, excessive violence on the part of the guards or police yeah. officers. Well, what's interesting is often you'll find you know suicide is the leading single cause of death, um, but a lot of the natural deaths that are you know initially labeled natural deaths, the local coverage will say, okay, this you know this happened or you know this person this happened, they died of a natural cause, health conditions. Yeah. And when you look closer at it, when you actually get the records, it turns out that there is some sort of altercation that like sort of, you know, set that mm-hmm. off. And they might have had some underlying health problems. But, you know, so one case, Michael Sabi, that we covered and sort of broke exclusively and put the video up, um, was this, you know, guy who they said, oh, he, you know, he's a, he's a big guy. Um, he, but they said he had some heart problems and, you know, he died. And that was sort of the initial story that came out. And then it turns out that he had gone repeatedly to medical, said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. He, they pepper sprayed him in the face. They tackled him to the ground. They tossed him in a, in a cell, didn't check on him like they were supposed to oh, for all Lord. this time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. ended up, you know, he ended up dying. And this was just a guy who, I mean, it, like, you know, the charges for him was he got into an argument with his wife and was um, charged with um, a version of assault. But it wasn't there wasn't actually any physical you know, contact, obviously. Um, you know, this is, a low, this is a misdemeanor offense and he just didn't have the money to, to bail out. Is what? this is this something that because uh, pardon my ignorance, but like is this something that jails have been doing in the past? Has it gotten worse, or is it just like, oh, we're just now realizing that we should probably take better care of our people so they don't do things like this? Yeah, you know, in the in the um, the eighties and nineties, this is a lot worse. There was like oh, a wow. level of Im- improvement to some um, to some extent, um, but I mean that was really disturbing. I mean, in terms of two thousand fourteen, which actually when we first put this project out, we put it out, I guess you know last week, the day after they finally put out the two thousand fourteen numbers. Of course, um, right? You know, so I mean, we're talking about it was almost three years, three full years. You're talking about like where we didn't know what's happening, and even now with two thousand fourteen, when we're like, okay, so now we know that you know 
three years ago, basically two over two years ago, um, we had really high levels of, of jail deaths and we had really high suicide rates. So what do we do about that now? To, like that that was one a big component of this is like, what do we focus on? Huh. If we don't learn until a lot down the line. All right. So how many people are we talking about? So over the course of a year, it's like usually a thousand people die. Um, and the rate is roughly 140 per every 100,000 um, inmates. So, you know, obviously the levels in prison are higher because some people die of just, you know, old age and people are in there for longer. Um, yeah. But jail is, you know, a very temporary situation. You're only in there for, you know, a short period of time usually before you can, you know, bail out. Some people end up being in there for longer. You know, some of these, one guy that was chronically ill was in there only because he had a misdemeanor pot charge um, and couldn't get afford $100 for a bail bond. Like he was just mm -hmm. broke. Um, so that's like the really the really tragic situations. I mean, all these are tragedies. But you know, when you, it's just someone who literally just didn't have the money to bail out, and taxpayers are paying for them to be in there yeah. and getting really poor care. So uh, somebody could be in there, like Sandra Bland, mm -hmm. for something as innocuous as a traffic violation, yeah. right, or whatever. But a thousand a thousand people a year nationwide. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to guess on the worst state that <laughs> you found. Okay, I'm going to say Alabama. Uh, because I've spent some time in Alabama, I don't disagree, but our slogan is, thank God for Mississippi. So I'm going to say Mississippi. Or it could be Texas. It's one of those three. Yeah. You know, Texas actually has recently, after the Sandra Bland um, incident, they... Are, are we close? No? <laughs> so we don't have the state level. It's, it's tough to determine it that way because we don't have the full state. Le like, we focus on the actual individual facilities. Right. Where some of them were. So a lot of them were Got in it. Virginia. And three of the, you know, three of the facilities that had the highest death rates were in Virginia. Now, I mean, so the way we calculated really? this is we focused on, you know, basically, basically on population. So we didn't say, like, oh, this person, this place had the most jail deaths. We said this place has the highest, you know, jail death rate. Um, and, you know, there were some problem, you know, problematic facilities in Texas. But, you know, Virginia... Um, had some facilities, especially this Hampton Roads facility, which is now under federal investigation, that have a lot of really, you know, deep problems. And, you know, one thing that is really interesting, too, that I didn't realize when we started looking into this is, I mean, the poor pay rates for jail guards really, I think, factor into this. We have, you know, it's tough to really p keep people, um, hold people accountable because it's such a transitionary job and it's such a you know it's a job that doesn't pay well and people aren't really you know that worried about maybe hanging on to because they can jump somewhere else i mean some of these places the, the one facility it's a private facility um, where michael sabi died in tex in um, on the border of texas and um, arkansas they only get paid 10 bucks an hour starting out so i mean this isn't a you know situation where it's this really um, high-paid job that they're worried about holding on to right yeah. uh, uh, no i was thinking about i mean they're they're very powerful at the federal level or even at the state level the prison guards are a very powerful union, too. Yeah. I'm surprised that, the, but I guess that doesn't f f factor down into the, uh, at the local jail. Yeah, I mean, you know, and some of them are privatized. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that was the case with, um, you know, the Texarkana jail. That was, you know, a private facility. It's basically they, you know, contracted it out and they say, okay, here's how much for medical care. And it turns out that the doctor who they actually said, okay, you're the doctor for this jail facility. He lives like, a, you know, he's a, he's an internalist who lives 150 miles away. So it's like, okay, he, in the contract, it's like, oh, every two weeks, maybe you'll actually show up physically at the facility. Uh, are there more it's, and yeah. more uh, private jails? There, yeah. I, I, again, I, I keep confusing. Your focus is on jails, yeah. not on prisons. Right? Yeah. But I, I know there's a problem on the prison side. I just finished Bernie Sanders' book, and he's got yeah. a whole discussion about privatizing prisons mm -hmm. and that people should not be able to make a profit over keeping people in jail 
that's a public responsibility. Taxpayers pay for it. Um, but so, so what extent is privatization happening at the jail level? It's, I mean, it's definitely happening there as well. Um, I mean, you know, I think the reason what we focused on jails was because essentially we're talking about, you know, this is a situation that literally anyone could find themselves in. It's like you get arrested for a lot of stuff in this country. And if you're in the wrong situation, you can get arrested for it. So it's a situation that anyone should be able to see themselves in. I think it's tougher in it. You know, it's it's a, more of a challenge for people to connect themselves to someone who's like been sentenced to a prison term, which, you know, obviously there's a lot of important issues happening there. Yeah. But anybody can be arrested for something and anybody can, you know, wind up in jail. You may be able to bail out very quickly if you have some access to money, but you could end up there. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the reasons that we focused on that is before anyone's been convicted of anything. Um, and yeah, privatization is a problem there. I mean, in a lot of places and, you know, including this place where they, you know, and now there's there's another case where in the same facility where a nurse um, has now been charged because someone died of diabetes and she ignored them and she, you know, injected them with the wrong thing at the end of her life. So that ended up spiking her sugar level and she died. And it's a 20 year old. I mean, a 20 year old girl that we're talking about here who, you know, wouldn't I mean, you know, if had proper medical care would never have been in that situation. So, um, have you ever been arrested? I have. No! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we know this story well. I don't. Oh, I yes, was, you do. <laughs> I was arrested in Ferguson. Uh, with? Yeah. <laughs> with Wesley Lowry. With Wes Lowry, who was just here last week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, so anyone can end up in that situation. There you go. I mean, I've done stuff that I actually should have been arrested for, probably, but, you know, this <laughs> was the case. That... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. There, this one wasn't a legitimate arrest. I would, I would put that there. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. So here's the man who knows whereof he speaks. <laughs> How many times have you been arrested? Uh, three. Jesus. <laughs> I, I, you didn't know that? We don't have to go any farther than that. I'm going to take another look at your job. How many times have you been arrested? your job resume. How many times have you been arrested? Zero. Oh, really? No, no kidding. I'm a virgin. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so's Jamie. Zero. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel... Do-gooders. I know. I'm going to have to I, hear more of this story off the air over yeah. here. I feel like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel inadequate. All right. I've also never been pulled over. Oh, never get been, out. Oh, come this on. This guy over here. No, seriously, oh, God. no. This oh, guy over here. That's ridiculous. Sissy. <laughs> Do-gooder. All right. <laughs> The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. You know what? We got a whole parting shot prepared here, but I just think it's just time to say we've had a good year. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been, been a, a good time. I want to thank all of you for being with us uh, Yeah, throughout the year. Yeah, we had a good year until November 8th, uh, <laughs> but uh, a lot going. We're very excited about joining the Young Turks, uh, and that's going to be a whole new look to the, uh, to the Bill Press Show. So uh, we appreciate your uh, hanging in there with us. And we know it was a, a stunning shock for all of us what happened on November 8th. But also we know we are resilient. We are believers, true progressive believers. We will survive and we will bounce back stronger than ever. So nothing more to say than Merry Christmas to all of you and Happy New Year. I take off today. John Allen will be here tomorrow as a friend of Bill. We'll come back with John Allen. This is the Bill Press Show.